0: from KQED.
3: from kqed in san francisco i'm alexis madrigal and this is hardly strictly bluegrass weekend in golden gate park the annual big free celebration of what i think we call roots music now is one of the most revered events on the cultural calendar we'll get a preview from Mick hellman the founder warren hellman's son and we're also joined by the country music legend steve Earle, who's carried the torch for a certain kind of outlaw music and left politics for decades now He's got his guitar here. He's going to play some songs as we talk about music and life. It's a special show, and it's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. It's hardly strictly weekend in the city, starting tomorrow, running through Sunday. There's a lineup of performers that are new to the stage, like one of my personal favorites, The Sacred Souls. And there are people who are stalwarts, like Steve Earle, one of the most accomplished singer songwriters of the last half century. He's put out dozens of albums, had many of his songs recorded by legends of country music, and influenced thousands of musicians. Before we bring in the guests, I want to note two quick things. KQED is streaming the banjo stage at Hardly Strictly, where Steve Earle will be performing on Saturday. And also, this show might sound a little bit different. We're in a different studio here at the station, just down the hall from Studio B. And that's because we needed a better spot for some live music from Steve Earle. Um, Steve Earle, singer, songwriter, actor, playwright, radio host, hardcore troubadour. Welcome to the show. It's good to be here. (laughs) And Mick (laughs) Hellman is the drummer with the Go to Hellman Band, the Reckless Strangers, and Marco and the Polos. Uh, Hellman's also the founder and managing partner of HMI Capital, and your father, Warren Hellman, founded the Hardly Strictly Bluegrass Festival. Welcome, Mick. Thank you, Alexis. It's great to be here. So uh, talk to me a little bit about the festival as it stands now. You know, 20-plus years. How has it changed, you think, from kind of the original conception?
2: Well, I think... uh Uh, Steve will remember this, but the original conception was strictly bluegrass. (laughs) Right, and I I missed that year not because I
4: I was invited, but I had already locked into a European tour, and I was so the original it was me, Emmy, this Hazel Dickens, I guess was that, yeah, and it was, and I guess probably Earl. Two two stages. Yeah, two stages, And, and it was, and I missed that, but I came the next year. And and it got out of hand pretty quickly. Yeah, <laughs> it's one of those things. I don't know. Um, Warren loved old time music and and and, um, and bluegrass, and he loved banjo, and he played banjo and. He had a really good banjo that I was really jealous of because I'd only seen a few of them. And uh, i got a white lady, by the way. I've got one just nice. exactly like Warren's. <laughs> oh, the white
3: got. lady is the banjo. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's
4: Fairbanks, <laughs> <laughs> between 1898 or so and 1915 or so, made a, a style of banjo called The White Lady. And, mm-hmm. and I've got one, and Warren had one. And, and uh, it's just... You know he loved this he loved this music and um he's pretty famous for being you know like a like a venture capitalist that that tried to hire Pete Seeger to give him banjo lessons. <laughs> <laughs> and it was good, Pete, good description. Pete, no, he did. Oh, he did. It's did. True. Pete, yeah. Pete, you know. Pete said no, <laughs> but but he's, he was uh, Warren was pretty proud of that that rejection. He, he did get Don
3: McLean, though. I would he, point out. Yeah yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, Well, you I know, uh, part of that, part of the vibe of the whole thing, right? Is that It's free to the public, and it right. still it still is. You think it's going to be free to the public
2: forever? Well, free to the public is for sure.
3: That's what
4: Warren used to say. We would would do the thing at the uh, other radio station. He goes, well, it's free to everybody but
2: me. (laughs) Good point. (laughs) But, you know, Uh, yeah, forever, like as long as we can keep doing it. Yeah. Forever's a long time. And do you think that changes
3: who wants to come to the festival? Like the acts, do they know that it's kind of like a a, a different thing to play a a free festival?
2: Yeah. So first of all, I think it's a very attractive place to come to Uh, as an act because of the values and because there's not corporate sponsorship in any way uh, at any part of the festival. And I think we also try to make it an artist festival where people can come and hang out and collaborate and enjoy themselves. Um, And uh, Steve himself is a great example of that where he frequently roams around uh, yeah. participating in many other people's John, John Henry and I shows. are often, like, seen on
4: a, a, a golf your, cart. Son. My son, who's yeah. 13 now, but he's been coming to the festival all of his life, and we're pre- frequently seen on a golf cart practicing our our parade wave, you know, elbow, elbow, wrist, wrist, touch your <laughs> pearls, switch. As we go through the grounds, it's kind
3: of retroactive. Yeah, because you've been, yeah, I mean, after that first year, you've been coming back year after year, you're right?
4: I've been every year except for the first year. Wow.
3: Um, you know, you were on Forum back in, uh, in I think it was 2009, and it's interesting because it feels like um, Roots Music. I mean, is that what we're calling it? Is that what you call it? I don't. What do you call them? Uh I just, I'm okay. Look, I'm my
4: dad finally decided, made it when I got into the New York Times crossword puzzle. <laughs> now, I'm, I I'd never had the heart to tell him. The reason I was in there so much was because of, of all the, the vowels, <laughs> Steve or <laughs> I'm a good corner, but that's the deal. So I've been in there literally hundreds of times, but I've been... I've been um, I've been country singer Steve Earl, or country singer Earl, or country singer Steve. I've been folk singer Steve and folk singer Earl. I've been Americana singer uh, mm-hmm. Steve and Americana singer Earl. And I've been country rock singer yeah. Steve and country rock singer Earl. So I'm okay with all of those. We've just established I'm not Americana because I don't ever even get nominated for those things. And, and whatever Americana is, I'm evidently it. I,
3: I mean, and are you okay with it basically? Because if you, you know, go back up the tributaries of American music, you do find that there's, you know, some stem there that you can, that you can connect into.
4: Yeah. I mean, there's not, um, I, I grew up in Texas, so the country music I grew up with was, was that locally was very heavily connected to Western swing and, and the blues. Um, and I'd never, I, I saw the Grand Ole Opry growing up a couple of times because my mother was from Tennessee originally and. Um, And we would go there to see her grandmother who raised her. But I didn't get up close to that music from, you know, east of the Mississippi and those mountains on that end of the country until I moved to Nashville when I was 19. And John Hartford was already there. The other weirdos besides Guy Clark and Towns Van Zandt and the people I was hanging out with from Texas were the long hair bluegrass guys. Newgrass existed by that time. Hartford was there. And there was never any... You know, the the Station Inn opened that year. So Hmm. that's still Bluegrass Ground Zero, the Hmm. Station Inn in Nashville, Tennessee.
3: Uh, You know, I've also heard you say some interesting things about bluegrass being kind of a new form of music. I mean, it's using old-time instrument sounds kind of, but it's... It
4: absolutely is. It's closer hmm. to bebop than it is anything else. I mean, it's like old-time music is... um, that's one thing, uh, and and there's a lot of great music there that I listen to. Bluegrass, Bill Monroe invented. It. It's one of the few things that we can we can track it down. <laughs> Pinpoint, yeah. He, Earl Scruggs and and Lester Flatt joined that band, and it becomes bluegrass as we know it. Okay.
3: And what differentiates it from you know like old time music of other kinds? Or, well,
4: level of musicianship. I mean, there, there's some guys guys that were great musicians that played that were just playing traditional songs, and I'm not sure they were any less talented, but it was guys that grew up. When you get by the time you get to the 40s, the radios happened, and they're being exposed to jazz, and they're being exposed to big band music, and they're at home trying to duplicate that stuff <laughs> on the instruments they have—the do-it-yourself instruments, the guitars, banjos, stuff that you could teach yourself to play—and then they're they're trying to do it, you know, yeah. like on those instruments. It's it's weird because there's different cultures around that kind of music. The worst insult you can you can give to a musician in New Orleans to a, a jazz musician just to suggest that they're reading that they're playing by ear because they take them they take a lot of pride in musical education and being able to read and that's a tradition there every bit as much as the oral tradition is in, in other kinds of music. But it's just that thing that happens and I I do think there's a direct, you know, parallel between bebop and and huh. those black musicians and what they arrived at and 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 what these guys in Kentucky and Virginia and and so, and and mainly it starts with Bill
3: Monroe. Yeah. Hmm. Mick, let's talk about um who's new to the lineup this year. Who are the newcomers who people might want to watch out for as they they get out to the festival?
2: Yeah. Um there's a lot. Uh so um Gosh, I don't even know where to start. Sunny War, I think, is with us for the first time. Um, gosh. Uh, Delamay, I think we've had before, but um, uh, The Sacred Souls, yeah, we, we've not had before. I love before. that. That's, that's, that's that
3: uh, kind of like soul soul music sound. You know, it's kind of the, um, I always love the kind of old Chicano dudes who love to roll the roll to that like old soul music. You know, it sounds like it's from the 1950s at some level,
2: but it also has some like new new elements too. Yeah. Um, Gosh, Teskey Brothers, I don't think we've had them before. Um, Mm. And then we have a whole new, I don't know if you've heard about the Horseshoe Hill stage, but Mm. we have a new stage that is curated by the next generation of Warren's descendants. And uh, in that particular, so it's a whole new stage. Okay. uh, And it is a mix of music, uh, poetry. There's a thing we've got going on with City Lights there. Uh, It's got a, I guess what I would call sort of a multi-dimensional. Uh, act called uh, Raining Chainsaws, That involves puppets and a lot of other fairly crazy stuff. Hopefully not actually raining
3: chainsaws. Yeah, sure. (laughs) You should read the weather report. It could be raining chainsaws. never can tell. Uh, We would love to get your questions. We're here with uh, Mick Hellman, uh, whose father, of course, founded the Hardly Strictly Bluegrass Festival. He's a drummer in his own right. And Steve Earle, singer, songwriter, actor, playwright, radio host, actor on The Wire, all kinds of things. Of course, he's going to be appearing as well on the Banjo uh, stage at Hardly Strictly Bluegrass Festival this weekend. Um, you can give us a call for your questions for, for either of them. Our number is 866 733 6786. That's 866 733 6786. You can email comments, questions to forum at kqed.org or find us on all the social things too. We're kqd Forum. You know, uh, I did. The, the politics of bluegrass has always been kind of interesting to me, right? Because you do have some of these real country folks and you also have. You know, this kind of um, Grateful Dead-inspired kind of interest in these instruments. And
4: it is all about the Grateful Dead. Jerry Garcia was a big bluegrass fan, and he had a great bluegrass band that actually included some of those guys that came from the the traditional side and I mean, and it was, uh, you know, Peter Rowan was in that band. That's my connection to it all. That mm-hmm. was where I, I had a band with Peter Rowan in at one point. And I have to bring this up at this point is I'm in town a day early to play a benefit because this all yeah. comes back to the Grateful Dead and Wavy Gravy and, and Larry Brilliant and a lot of things that happen in the Bay Area that that are, that are I think make the Bay Area special. Tonight at the Herbst Theater, myself, Ricky Lee Jones, John Craigie, and Peter Rowan, We'll be appearing in a guitar pull format, beginning at seven thirty. It's all of us on stage at the one, swapping songs, and the money goes to Camp Winter Rainbow, which oh my are Wavy Gravy's kids camps, which you've yeah. been doing. Great work in the Bay Area for a long time. So you're getting into the park for free this weekend. Come and spend some money before you go out there. And then no, awesome. none of us go to hell. It's really yeah, There that's you go. Right. That's I mean, Camp pick. Winter
3: Rainbow is legendary. A bunch of our, our friends, you know, ki- you know, people uh, my age, you know, in their early 40s, late 30s, they went there. Now their kids go there. Absolutely. And it's Absolutely. just it's one of those really just, like, beautiful I, I, Jordan
4: Olive right. and I put these shows together the last year. And she's Camp Winter Rainbow, um, you know, like she was a Camp Winter Rainbow kid and, and that, that grew up. Up and loves it, and her her daughter goes to school there. Oh, the sour widows are the very. First act up, and it's all Camp Winter Rainbow at, uh, alumni. So, uh, oh my God, uh, wow. that That's, that'll be a trip. We that, started this last year, and uh, it, we're trying to do it every year. And it's a good time to do it the night before bluegrass starts. Yeah, because I'm here, and then the, we, we have some other acts that we can bring in. Ricky Lee Jones is also playing the festival, and she's playing. Peter Rowan's also playing. Hardly Strictly Bluegrass, and he's,
3: oh. of course, Pete lives here. But yeah. but uh, can't so wait to tell rainbow. my kids after this, they have to go to a Camp Winter Rainbow. We're talking uh, country and folk music with legend Steve Earle and mick hellman stay tuned for more right after the break
0: support for forum comes from san francisco opera
3: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking country and folk music with drummer Mick Hellman, Hellman's father. Warren Helman, founded the Hardly Strictly Bluegrass Festival. And we're also joined by Steve Earle, legendary country slash folk slash country rock musician. Plus He's, of course, going to be... corner in the New York Times. Plus watch. a corner, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you ever can't figure out, <clears throat> uh, it's all the vowels. Um, Steve's going to play for us now. Yeah. A song for us.
4: I, um... We, uh... Liz and Warren was was a shock to everybody that knew him because he was probably the most vital human being that I've ever met in my life. He did this insane kind of uh, triathlon thing that's horses and swimming and running, and you end up on a on a fast Arab horse in your underwear. It looks really hard to face. So it's like a he was. Amazing. And, and, and then he suddenly got um, a form of leukemia that most people survived, but he had had the shingles. And, and boy, I tell everybody, get a shingle shot. And I got mine right after that. It was like, because he, he was talking about the shingles. I talked to him a, night, a couple of nights before he passed on the phone. And, and for that to take him out was just mm-hmm. a shock to everybody. And then we all gathered here for a memorial, and, and I had to come up with something to play. And that's where this song came from, and I I opened my show at Hardly Strictly with it every year ever since. Mm. To the founder of the feast. Mm. Mm. I'm standing on Jordan Shore, standing on Jordan Shore, and I ain't gonna worry anymore, standing on Jordan Shore, gonna lay my purse aside, lay my purse aside. Cause my money no good on the other side Gonna lay my purse aside Gonna carry my old banjo carry my old banjo Cause the devil won't follow wherever I go If I carry my old banjo, boy Gonna play that soldier's joy Play that soldier's joy Popper haired mule and a red haired boy, gonna play that soldier's joy. Gonna play that shady oh, go. Sit in play that shady go. Gonna buy cabbage down, buy cabbage down. going extent stand that sound when I buy cabbage down, boy.
3: Thank you so much, for playing Warren's uh, banjo tribute to uh, the founder of Hardly Strictly Bluegrass. We've also uh, joined by Warren's son, Mick Hellman, who's also going to be appearing at the festival. Uh, important, KQD is also going to be playing a live stream from the banjo stage of Hardly Strictly Bluegrass this weekend. It's going to be you know Steve, Kerry Rodriguez, Ricky Lee Jones, Rufus Wainwright, Emily Lou Harris. You don't want to miss that. And Steve Earl is also going to be in a benefit concert tonight. That's 928. That's tonight, 730. Uh, Herb's Theater, that's a benefit for Camp Winter Rainbow, which is a circus and performing arts summer camp in Northern California and a reason why um, a strangely large number of my friends know how to juggle. <laughs> uh, We'd love your uh, questions. We're going to go to the, some comments and uh, calls uh, on the phones. What are your questions for uh, Steve Rowe? You can give us a call. The numbers number 866-733-6786. You can email forum at kqed.org, Twitter, Instagram. All the things. We're KQED forum. Um, let's bring in uh, caller Gary in San Francisco. Welcome, Gary. Hi.
2: Uh, hey. Uh, wow. Um, Steve Earl, it's a real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for coming back to San Francisco.
4: I'm always here first weekend in October. <laughs>
2: Well, so as a, as someone with your your uh, background and your story, and also a history, and I and I think a fondness for uh, San Francisco, I wonder if you could just give us your impressions of uh, of, of of this city in twenty twenty three of uh, of uh, of how you think we're doing. Hmm.
4: Well, I mean, I think for anybody that loves this town, it's hard to watch. Thanks, It's, prob- it's probably even harder if you've been sitting here living through it. You know, because somebody has to stay and. Uh, it's always been a city that I saw for between three and five days every year, the first weekend in October. I actually, you know, because of the bluegrass, I don't play hard-ticket dates in San Francisco in a lot of years. Close. I played Petaluma this summer, and that was as close as I've been in a long time. But it's it was pretty shocking. Um, New York, I live in New York City. It's taken a pretty big hit, too. But, see, one thing I figured out about I moved from the village to... Battery Park City, and this is just, I'm saying this so you can think about your own community and try to put things in context, um, is I don't see any obvious homelessness in my neighborhood. And it's not so much because it's a rich neighborhood. There's no such thing as a poor neighborhood in Manhattan anymore. That, mm-hmm. that that train left a long time ago. It's because all of the buildings are new buildings with with garbage chutes that go straight into a dumpster and there's no garbage on the streets the one st- the one neighborhood in New York where there's zero trash on the street is Battery Park City. Mm-hmm. So homeless people have no forage. And that makes me sad when I say it. But basically, virtually everything in their lives, what they eat and what they wear, comes from stuff that other people throw away. And they have no access to any of that in the neighborhood. I live in New York, so I don't see it anymore mm-hmm. since I moved downtown. So here... I think a lot of people own property that it was part-time property. That was a trend in buying property in the city, and it drove out people that had been able to afford to live here before. That happens everywhere. I think they had so much money that some of them have hung on to that property even though they're not here and they're not participating in a life here on the streets, and I mm-hmm. think that may be part of it. But it's it looks worse on the surface. I'm not sure that it really is. Mm. Um, pe- more homeless people have come to... Portland is in really bad shape Seattle's in really bad shape more people have come to the Pacific Northwest when they had no place else to go for a long long time because it's just for a lot of reasons more survivable when mm-hmm. in the winter time mm-hmm. so homeless people flock towards this this part of the country I always have
3: you know let me ask you this i mean a kind of a, a famous part of your story is uh you know b- battles with addiction um and you know g- getting clean many years ago and as someone who has struggled with addiction, specifically to you know opiates, um, I mean, what do you think the city should be doing? What should we all be doing to like support people to get get out of that place? Because that's certainly also part of what's happening on the streets too.
4: It is, but I think in this particular case, it's more you know, you know, that's a cart and horse situation, and and mm-hmm. and opiates themselves are. Um, it, Fentanyl in particular, I, I lost my son, you know, um, mm-hmm. who's a regular, hardly strictly bluegrass. We kind of grew up there and uh, my oldest son and Justin. But so we're seeing a lot more death and we're seeing, yeah. um, you know, it's I've, there was never crack in Washington Square Park in New York in the 80s. I know I tried and and it wasn't there and it's there now. Uh, there are people smoking fentanyl in subway stations on the, in the West Village. And they haven't been able to get control of that. It all happened during the lockdown and they had that excuse, but they don't have that excuse mm-hmm. anymore. I, it's just one of those things that drugs heavily contribute to. But it's mainly about we've never taken care of of people that are marginalized for whatever reason, whatever it is. Whether it's a, I used to spend a lot of money and a lot of time in neighborhoods that um, where I was part of the problem, where I was there with money. And, and I was supporting a drug traffic that kept a lot of people that had no involvement with the drugs whatsoever. They just lived there because that's where they could afford to live. And they were prisoners in their own homes because of the drug traffic that was going on outside their homes. That's the biggest, you know, amend that I owe, you know, and then, that I, you know, it, I, I go through that every day uh, just in trying to stay clean and, and trying to get through my life. But uh, it's, it's a big circle, I think. Um, we saw this worldwide disaster happen you would think it would have brought us together and in this country it did not it mm-hmm. divided us and um and i think we're so divided that we we have trouble doing anything much less responding to a crisis
3: yeah you know let's talk a little bit about that polarization too i mean cuz you see it kind of in the in the music right too like hardly strictly might be one pole of kind of the the left pole of this kind of uh, you know folk and country music but there's also, like, another side of it, right? Like, you know, don't try that in a small town, you know, and kind of like rich men north of Richmond, and these other kinds of country that are maybe, uh, like, rightward aligned, right? Yeah, but it's
4: it's one of those things that, that when my first record came out, Guitar Town, I mean, there were people that on the left that, that thought I was the character in Good Old Boy Getting Tough, but it, what it was was a Reagan-era record about people that were just trying to get through and trying to understand what was happening to them. The times were changing. And and I've written that same record in different eras ever since I've been around long enough to be lucky enough to be able to say that. No one thing, I didn't die. And and then I made, you know, after I came back, I made, you know, like 18 more records. And and it's not, you know, it's that thing of, I don't um, think it's helpful to point fingers left or right, to tell you the truth. I think, you know, I made my last record of original material was called Ghosts of West Virginia. It's about an explosion that happened in a coal mine in West Virginia. And one of my reasons the project intrigued me was that the songs were written for a play called Coal Country. Jessica Blank and Eric Jensen wrote the book Mm -hmm. and I wrote the songs and performed in it. Went up at the public theater on March 20th, 2020, but we got back up after the pandemic ended. And it was a story I wanted to tell because telling, teaching New Yorkers about West Virginians. You ask somebody in New York or San Francisco, "What's West Virginia?" Well, that's a red state. That's a Trump state. And that's not true. It's a purple state at best. They have a Democratic senator, he's an a-hole, but they have him. You know, so it's one of those deals, and that that does matter that they have him. So it's not. Um, what it is is a coal state now. Hmm environmentalist friends of mine freak out about that and I am concerned about the environment more than I am almost anything else because if we can't breathe none of this other stuff matters but the truth of the matter is what you're dealing with people they say rich people vote their they say people vote their pocketbooks rich people vote their pocketbooks working people vote their hearts they vote their livelihoods and so Just trying to get people in New York to understand why people in West Virginia are the way they are and why they vote the way they are. I saw a Holiday Inn packed with people at a Bernie Sanders rally like six years ago when we were riding coal country. And it was because he was pro-union and it was the most pro-union place in the United States of America is West Virginia Hmm. because of the coal mines.
3: Yeah,
2: Yeah, I just wanted to comment a bit on the role of HSB as well, you know, in this sort of polarized environment. And we don't want to choose a poll. Uh, What we're trying to be in is an event that focuses on things like uh, joy and creativity and inclusion. And inclusion means not excluding people. Uh, And, you know, if you have are willing to embrace those kind of values, you know, we want you to come to our festival regardless of, you know, what you may do when you get in the privacy of a polling booth. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, I've always struggled with this with,
3: you know, some of the, like, outlaw country side of things, right? Because the music sounded really good to me, but then I'd see this, like, kind of Confederate iconography around it. I'd be like, you're in Bakersfield. Like, what are we talking about here? Um, How how did you make sense of that, Steve, as you were Uh, I mean,
4: you probably could find a picture of me with a Confederate flag on something that I wore a long time ago. But I never, when I was lucky, I was raised, I was never raised to believe that the Civil War was fought about anything but slavery. I never called it the war between the states. And uh, yeah, I just wasn't raised that way. I was raised to think the South rebelled because they wanted to keep their slaves, and they lost. That's, that's what I learned in my my home in the South. So um, uh, the word got to Texas, where I'm from, last. And they, the last battle in the Civil War was fought a month after Lee surrendered at Appomattox in, in Texas. But, at, uh, but I, I don't... Um, an African-American friend of mine said, that offends me because, you know, A, B, Cindy, and I never, I said, oh, I get it. And it's not what people think of this. It's not the, even the flag of the Confederacy. It's the flag of the, uh, it's the battle jack of the Army of Northern Virginia. That's all that ever was. And that's why it's so iconic among some people, because that was the successful part of the Confederate Army that kind of did something. They were never going to win. That was never gonna happen. Times were changing and, and people decided to fight for a way of life that was already gone and and it's a it's a one of the great tragedies in American history. It was it was done. We now, Texas, where I'm from, the big lie we're told all of our lives is about the battle of the Alamo and the Texas Revolution. Mm-hmm. The the Alamo was Santana Antonio Lopez de Santana did not attack Texas because he hated our freedom. He attacked us because we were holding slaves. All of the settlers in Texas had agreed to convert to Catholicism and not to hold slaves because that was Mexican law. Slavery was illegal. And so Santana, they were warned and warned, but they wanted to grow cotton. They all brought slaves, and he eventually attacked Texas. Right,
3: yeah. It's one of those things where, you know, American slave uh, state politics and, you know, westward expansion and... You know, um, yeah, the, the war with Mexico—all those things are sort of more tied together than I think. You know, we're often taught. In, in,
4: it's like in the death penalty in Texas. It's, it's harder to stop it there than any place else because they simply, because the more people have been executed, the more blood on your hands, the more the less you want to have that conversation. We have a lot of blood on our hands. Uh, this country literally exists. For the purpose of extending slavery you can't act like England were heroes they 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 kind of secretly backed the Confederacy at different places because it was in their interest but they they the u.s exists partially so slavery could be continue to be practiced after it was illegal in Europe for the second and third sons of landed families in Europe
3: yeah, yeah. you know um, I want to go back to the 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 unions and the moment that we're in right now. Moment of strikes. I mean, it's on, you know, every, every morning, you know, um, and not just, you know, Seg After and the Writers Guild, but, you know, UAW and um, the strikes that have happened uh, uh, in many different industries. You got a song, Union God and Country, from your, you know, off-Broadway off, off Broadway show, Coal Country. And, you know, that song, is it's... it. um It's about a way of life as much as it is about union organizing. It is. Um, How do you think union organizing looks a little bit different if it's not, you know, just the thing that you grew up with and the thing you knew was, you know, union god country?
4: Well, we're going to have to learn every place but West Virginia. um, The union died out in eastern Kentucky in the 70s and then West Virginia held up through the 90s. And it's for one reason. The coal in West Virginia is still steel making coal it's high quality coal that burns hot enough to actually make steel now what does that mean it means it's going someplace else in the world because we don't make steel in this country so it's not the coal that's messing up our air that's that's a that's a myth that people tell there's propaganda on both sides you know I think that most places in the country we bought the idea that unions are bad that they're corrupt that they cost us money that cost us jobs and it's a you know I grew up being told to send, uh, to to replace the idea of right to, right to work with right to starve. You know, it's one of those things. I grew up in a right to work state, as they call it, but, but that's that's a lie. It's not about a right to work. It's about a right to organize or not. And we're gu- we're getting ready, and it could be just the medicine that we need because we're gonna learn about trade unionism. In my p- opinion from all the immigrants that we're talking about because they've come from places where there were train unions that were viable more recently, and they are the only, they're the blue-collar workforce in our country now. They're the people that kind of have us over a barrel. We don't want to mow our own lawns. We don't want to make our own beds. We don't want to do that stuff. So they, at this moment, have that power that, that steel workers and construction workers and other, the traditional union workers had. Yeah. So maybe we'll learn how... To have that lip. To, to me it 's really simple every place else in the world but here, a trade union and the existence of trade union is a fundamental component of democracy it 's the only thing that evens the playing field between the haves and the have nots and the existence of a trade union and collective bargaining yeah.
3: we 're talking country and folk music and a lot more with uh, Steve Earle singer songwriter, uh, you know three Grammy Awards for folk albums. Appearing, of course, at Hardly Strictly Bluegrass in San Francisco this weekend. We're also joined by Mick Hellman, drummer in several bands, who's also going to be appearing at Hardly Strictly this weekend. I wanted to shout out that KQED is going to be streaming the banjo stage uh, live from uh, KQED. And I also wanted to, uh, you know, just if you've got questions for Steve bro, give us a call, 866 733 6786. That's 866 733 6786. So try the email Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're joined by Steve Earle and Mick Hellman. We're talking hardly strictly bluegrass. Of course, it starts tomorrow. It starts at
2: 1 o'clock, right, Mick, tomorrow? That's correct. Uh, The gates open at 11 tomorrow, and then uh, Saturday and Sunday they'll open at 9. The show starts at 11 on Saturday and Sunday. If you want to get
3: started early, Steve Earle's playing a benefit concert tonight. Uh, 7.30, Herb's Theater, that's a benefit for Camp Win a Rainbow at the Circus and Performing Arts Summer Camp in Northern California. You can get tickets at cityboxoffice.com. We'll get to more of your uh, comments and questions for Steve. The number is 866-733-6786, and the email is forum at kqed.org. Mick, I want to give you a chance to shout out some of your uh, favorite acts for, our, for this
2: year. Well, I think uh, I'm sure you love them all. You love them all, I know. But you know, you're I born... don't have any favorite children, Alexis. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and if you believe, no, okay. Yeah, so it's we'll like, just, uh, um,
4: it's just, yeah.
2: Yeah, so I, I I feel like I'd be remiss uh, if I didn't mention that you know the Go to Hellman band over the years has begat many other acts that have, sp- in some sense or other, spun out of the Hellman family m- music movement. So uh, Olivia Wolf is going to be who is uh, Olivia Hellman. We'll be playing uh, Saturday afternoon, 3.15, I think, at the Arrow Stage. Uh, we've got the Purple Glaze, which is a semi-bluegrass band that is my sister, Trisha and uh, her child, Katie Gibbs. Um, Taylor McCall, who's a uh, young uh, blues guitarist uh, out of, I want to say, uh, North Carolina, I think, and is living now in Nashville. Um, actually, he's going to be touring in November with Robert Plant. So I would give a shout out to him. Gosh. Um, and I'm playing with my sisters, another spinoff, Marco and the Polos, on Sunday on the Aero stage. Were you just given a banjo basically at birth? Like everyone in the family just got little tiny banjos just all the way down the line? <laughs> Pretty much
3: that thing was shoved down my throat. I never
2: learned to play it. Maybe I rebelled by turning to A drummer. Yeah, Yeah, I guess that's right. Just need to make your parents crazy. In
4: bluegrass bands, they tell drummer jokes the way they do in rock and roll bands because there's
2: a drum on it. You know, it's one of those things. I think it's always
4: the bad joke player. It's whatever's loud, you know. It's one of those deals.
2: Right. How did, uh, why did the bass player break the window of his car?
4: Uh, I don't know.
2: He had to release the drummer. (laughs) Yeah, there's there's tons
4: of them. I I I don't know. I think uh, we have to mention Buddy Miller, who suits up and shows up every year. And Buddy Miller's Cavalcade of stars. He's got a lot of people. There's a Guy Clark tribute on that stage. I guess he's at rooster, right? Um, there on that stage. We used Correct. to we used to guy used to do the last several years of his life. He wasn't really getting through a whole set anymore, so we did a guitar poll that included Guy, and I was part of that for several years until Guy was gone. And um, it's, it's going to be Sean Camp and Verlin Thompson, two people that were really, really close to Guy, are doing this this touring Guy Clark tribute that they do as part of Buddy's, Buddy's day on that stage. Um, and, of course, Buddy's, Buddy's like maybe, I think he's probably the best country singer alive, although you know, huh. he's never, probably never been on country radio. It blows my mind.
2: That's actually around noon, yeah. uh, on Saturday, and it's also and it got... goes goes all day, basically. That's the guitar pull.
4: Yeah, yeah. no, no, that's oh. that's that's one act after another that Buddy Miller, stage Buddy Miller, curates.
2: The right? Sisters, Betty Lavette. Yeah, it's going to be randomly Lee. Yeah,
4: it's going to be good. That's awesome. Always does.
3: Um, Mick, you know your family's been you know just deeply involved in San Francisco, and you know we asked Steve a little bit about what he uh, thinks about how the city is doing. I mean, how about you? I mean, what do you? When people say like, "Oh man, we're in a doom loop," like, are you like, "Yep"? <laughs> or are you? Do you
2: have a, a take about what needs to happen or, or where we are? So cities are cyclical. I actually grew up in New York in the sixties and seventies before mm-hmm. coming out here. Not a necessarily well-known fact. And uh, I don't know if you all remember the movie Escape from New York. Yeah. In, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or Warriors, yeah. <laughs> or the Warriors. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there were some pretty dark times there. Uh, San Francisco also has been through a lot um, going back to the earthquake and or very different earthquakes. So there's a cyclicality to it, and I don't think people should give up hope uh, in any way. I've seen people look at trying to solve the problems of, homelessness and drug addiction for many many years with all sorts of ideas give them cash don't give them cash uh various other solutions and i have nothing to add to that to be honest i think that um you know our family tries to do a lot in terms of engagement with the community to deal with the problems as they arise uh, and try to work through and get to some solutions hellman foundation which is actually the one that funds hardly strictly bluegrass uh, has a lot of different programs uh, that are really focused around the Bay Area on dealing with problems both of inequality, uh, problems of healthcare, care, education, um, sometimes addiction, uh, food resources. And uh, we just try to go at it, you know, with what's in front of us. Yeah, yeah. It's tough because, you know, when we
3: have people on to talk about, you know, particularly the problems of, you know, drug addiction or homelessness, it doesn't seem like anyone has a is offering a solution that's kind of at the scale of the problem, right? No yeah. one is sort of like, "What we're going to do is we're going to stop all the meth because meth is also a you know, huge, huge problem in the streets, and we're going to stop all the fentanyl." Instead, we hear the price of meth. You know, we had again, Sam Canones on who's focused a lot on you know cartel reporting. It's like the the price of meth has fallen like ten x over the last ten years, and yeah. so now it's just everywhere. Well.
4: It's that's happened. That's the there's a market in drugs like there is in everything else. Um the 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 deal with fentanyl that made it different. They've been trying to it's expensive and only certain places you can grow opium poppies. They finally learned how to do it in Mexico and they were doing that and you know, the cartels in Mexico became powerful because they Colombian cartels had been bringing cocaine through the country for a long time and they took over that trade. They had the overland routes because it was pretty easy to stop it. Believe it or not, it seems like an ocean would be hard to police, but easier to police the Caribbean evidently than it was Mexico because... You could buy off all the people that you needed to buy off in Mexico mm-hmm. to make it happen, and and so this flow of drugs that nobody was prepared for started. But I do think the problem comes before the drugs. I think hmm. it, drugs. There's a reason why that they introduced crack and in marginalized communities. That was a they called it the product. It created a, a demand for itself people that that don't have any hope are gonna Mm -hmm. turn towards something to make them feel better. That's where the market is and it bleeds into the greater society. And that's the first time we get concerned about it. During the Vietnam War, there was like no heroin was something people didn't talk about until all of a sudden a few guys came back from Vietnam addicted to heroin and then and then because of an open drug culture kids that were normally, you didn't associate with that. In other words, we, we, I, and I'm gonna say it, white middle class and upper middle class kids started to get addicted to heroin. Then we have a heroin problem. It wasn't a problem when it was people of color and people that we didn't exactly. see and people that didn't matter. So you can solve it. It's real easy. It's it's like pay taxes. It's <laughs> like pay taxes, take care of people. You know, if everybody has health care. Everybody has a roof over their head. A lot of these problems will go away, and I don't think you end up with what you see here. But it just comes down to, you know, there's when you have a, an economy that's based on real estate. For one thing, there's only so much land, so that means there's only so much wealth, and and that marginalizes people. People become there becomes more and more rich people. In, it's not even insidious. It's 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 a natural. The capitalism is not. It's a force of nature. It's not really a belief system. It happens, and it's there's no reason to. You can't wipe out capitalism. There'll always be a market in there. But you can regulate it, and we have regulated in the past when we had to when it got out of control. And well, you've and, been and calling just,
3: yourself a socialist for while. I am a, I'm a yeah, socialist, yeah, yeah.
4: I, but I also realize I live in a country with absolutely no, no socialist histories besides the new deal. And, um, and, and by the way, I, I, one of the Republican candidates, um, like said that it uh, was Pence said that he was ready to think that we need to repeal the new deal. I think he thought it was a law, but it's one of, the, it's one of those things. actually did say that the other night. So that's a little scary, but yeah. you know, Never forget that. Well, NPR was was when you know the the public broadcast system in general was created by Lyndon Johnson, was like like a basically a you know uh, Bill Moyers was there, and who his press secretary had a lot to do with it. But Johnson was a New Deal Democrat. He brought electricity to the hill country and country. Mm-hmm. He gets this. He'll be remembered for escalating the Vietnam War, the Civil Rights Act. That was Johnson, not Kennedy. JFK did not have the chops to get that bill through. Little Texas with, pride bleeding through. Little Texas pride. Without a doubt. And and I, when I when I tell people when they land in Austin, I left Texas in 1974. When I when you land in Austin, you walk past that statue of Barbara Jordan. That's the Texas that I left, and I thought it was becoming Southern California when I left, and I don't know what happened.
3: Huh. Let's uh, let's bring in another call. Let's bring in uh, Ricardo in Fremont. Welcome.
2: Hi, uh, yeah, I just like to say I'm looking forward to seeing the show this weekend. I've been listening to the Steve Earle's music
4: since the '80s. We were working in construction. I've been doing drywall for 40 years, and. Uh, the, his songs were like an anthem on the job sites. We had boom boxes going, and it was a great mix of, you know, I'm a Mexican of descent, but there was a lot of Okie friends of mine. We used to work together, and we'd listen to each other's music, and his uh, songs were
0: really, really, uh, I remember them fondly. And uh, that's all I like
1: to say. And uh, You just, one other thing you just is, made my uh, whole day, <laughs> <laughs> my whole weekend. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs>
3: Ricardo, thank you so much, man. Appreciate it. Hope you're able to get out to the get out to the show. Um, Why don't you you want to talk to us a little bit about uh, the next song um, that you're going to play us at the uh, end of the hour here?
4: Yeah, Copperhead (laughs) Road. Copperhead Road is a new Tennessee State song officially. Uh, I guess
3: there was a ceremony and everything. I heard.
4: Yeah. Oh, I went. Somebody asked me what this was. Right when they had just kicked two members out. Of course, they were already back on the floor, and they'll be reelected. Um. But somebody said, "Are you going to go accept it from those people?" That, I said, "Yeah, I'm going to go accept it," and and I accepted it. I thanked everybody that voted for it, which was which was unanimous in the Senate and only four dissenting votes in the in uh, the House. Now, and, and I I congratulated the Speaker of the House. who's notoriously right wing and Trumpish. Because we all had our pictures taken together at the end. And I said, I said you're a brave man. I once <laughs> witnessed Al and Tipper Gore levitating trying to avoid taking <laughs> their picture with me at one point. You know, So it was uh, it was a big—now, uh, when they read the lyrics, when they, they put the lyrics up on the website— Yeah, what's the they, song about for people who when, don't know? When they know. read yeah. the lyrics, they're probably going to take it back down again. I expect another piece of legislation, but, but it did get through. Everybody that's in that body now grew up with Copperhead Road. Uh record came out in 1988— <laughs> It's kind of my version of Thunder Road. You know, it's basically, it's it's based on that and a lot of other stuff that I grew up with. But it's also my, that, that album is my post-Vietnam record. It's my third album. Bruce had made Born in the USA by then. Platoon had come out. It took us a long time. It took 10 years for us to even begin talking about the war in Vietnam. We didn't talk about it for a long time. I was sitting with a friend of mine who was a Vietnam vet at the baseball game, and they announced they were going to do fireworks. And they said... Oh, and I said, what's the matter? And then I realized he was on a, you know, he was on a swift boat and they just, they would spend weeks not searching anybody because the heat went on and then the pressure would be on them to search every boat and they would just freak out. And every once in a while, somebody would move in a boat the wrong way and they would just dust the whole boat. And he, and I just said, I said, well, let's leave, you know? And he said, no, I want to try to get through this. And he got through all the booms and all that stuff didn't bother him. But then they put up something that was white and it was phosphorus. You know, it was like it lit up the whole sky. It was the flares. That's what he remembered that freaked him out. And he put his head between his knees and he stayed there until the fireworks display was over with. Wow. So it took us till 82, 83 to start talking about it. And by 88, I, was, I, I came up with my version of it. I was the first class that didn't go. My lottery was the first one that didn't happen. So I, I registered for the draft. Um, and then it, but by that time Nixon's bone that he was throwing everybody was he was taking 19 yeah. year olds first mainly because some people with money hadn't had a chance to get their kids into college before the draft got them because they would become so desperate so
3: do you want to play just about a you, just about a time okay. yeah we're yeah. gonna uh, um, rig up your uh, guitar I need, here I
4: need a pick and um but uh, this is I, I normally play this on mandolin but I didn't want to drag everything up here and uh, it's louder that's a beautiful anywhere. guitar too Yeah, it's a new one that Martin made for me. I think it's going to be an artist model that you'll be able to get at Green Guitars in Nashville. It's made to be tough and where roadies can't break it, so... i come back from Copperhead Road I <laughs> on the whiskey a bit like that I probably had an auction a piece of Times I was to share painted Hero!
3: Overhead Road by Steve Earle. We've been talking with Steve and Mick Hellman because it's hardly strictly bluegrass this weekend. Check it out. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour with Mina Kim. Thanks so much, guys.
2: Thank you, Alexis. Thanks. Thank you, Steve.
3: Thank you.
0: Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts.